John chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are... Uh, We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered them and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of the one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, the Apostle John in his uh, epistle, uh, in his uh, gospel, uh, describes to us in some detail seven 
great miracles of Jesus. He certainly references many other miracles that Jesus did, but uh, seven in particular he singles out for special attention and description, beginning with the changing of water into wine and culminating in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The sixth of those great miracles that John describes is the one that uh, we considered uh, two weeks ago and again today, the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. Uh, This was indeed an amazing miracle. Uh, It is so uh, commented on by the man to whom it happened. Uh, His neighbors and those who knew him also were uh, greatly uh, amazed by this, so amazed that they said that we need some kind of explanation. And so they they brought him to the Pharisees, probably not out of any ill will, but because the Pharisees were the uh, educated authorities in the community. They wanted some kind of explanation of what what's going on here. What, what does this mean? What does this mean regarding God? What does this mean regarding uh, Jesus? What does this mean for us? that this man who was born blind should now see. And uh, the the man is uh, interviewed by the Pharisees, not once, uh, but twice. They first question him, and then they bring him back again. And then there's a third interview, but not with the Pharisees. The third interview of, of the blind man is with Jesus himself. So I'd like to use these three interviews to kind of structure our consideration of this event and see what's going on and what significance this has for us. Well, the first interview was with the Pharisees, and it becomes evident that the purpose of this interview, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, is to discredit Jesus to cast him in a bad light so that people will not believe in him. They're well aware of who Jesus is. They have been following him and for some time and uh, seen and heard about him, and they have not uh, believed in him. And uh, therefore, when this comes about, they jump on anything they can jump on in order to try to discredit Jesus. And there are two things that they use to try to discredit Jesus. First of all, they try to label him a heretic because he doesn't follow the law of Moses. And in that regard, they're considering that he healed on the Sabbath day. Now, Moses never said anything specific about healing on the Sabbath day. Moses, of course, gave the Ten Commandments. Six days shall you labor, and the seventh is a Sabbath, a day of rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And the Jews uh, developed an oral tradition around that commandment that defined in minute detail all the different kinds of activities that would be considered work that are prohibited and other activities that would not be considered work that would be allowed. And among the things that was not allowed according to oral tradition surrounding the a commandment was going to the doctor to get healed. If you're sick, you wait until the next day, which, by the way, is contrary to the implications of written Mosaic law, which says that if your animal, your livestock falls into a ditch on the Sabbath day, you're not to leave it there until the next day. You're to help it on the Sabbath day. 
And uh, if that's true of livestock, how much more ought it to be true of uh, people who are created in the image of God, how they ought to be helped if they are in need on, uh, uh, on the Sabbath day. Uh, so their oral tradition is uh, quite out of whack with the law, uh, which is why, by the way, uh, as a little aside, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus makes reference not to what Moses wrote. Uh, you have heard that it was written. No, he says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said. And then he references a commandment that is written, but he's referring to what was said about that commandment, the oral tradition, which is often uh, quite different than what Moses intended in the written word. And that's the case here. They're saying, you know, Moses warned us. Moses warned us that uh, false prophets would come performing signs and wonders, but uh, Moses told us how we would know they would be false prophets because they would depart from what Moses himself taught. And therefore, though Jesus has performed a miracle, he has departed from what Moses taught because he's healing on the Sabbath, therefore he's a false prophet, therefore you ought not to follow him. That's how they attempt to discredit Jesus here. But... Uh, their attempt to discredit Jesus by calling him a false prophet uh, doesn't quite convince everybody. In fact, doesn't convince even all the Pharisees. Uh, they were divided on the question. They were divided on the question because the miracle was of such a nature that it's hard to attribute this to the work of demons. They knew the history of uh, Moses and the uh, magicians from Egypt that uh, when Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake and he grabbed it by the tail and it became a staff again that the uh, magi uh, Egyptian magicians did the same thing. Uh, they knew that uh, by the power of demons, uh, false uh, priests and prophets and so forth could perform false signs. But they also knew that later on, as Moses was doing some bigger <laughs> things, that the magicians confessed we can't do this. This is this is the hand of the uh, of the real God because uh, uh, by our powers we can't do this. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day looked at what had happened to this blind man and realized this is truly significant. You know, it's one thing if a child is is born with a lazy eye and you can fix it with corrective lenses. It's one thing if you. Uh, at age 70, develop uh, cataracts, and uh, with a little laser surgery, you can uh, remove the, the cataracts and so forth and return vision. Uh, those are some of the wonders of, uh, of modern medicine, that we can restore sight to people who have trouble seeing. But if somebody's born blind, it means that when they were in the womb, the whole apparatus, the organs and the nerves and everything didn't develop right. And in order to restore sight to someone born blind, it's, it's like you have to create all those things. And not only do you have to create all those things that weren't created uh, when they should have been, but you have to train the brain to process the uh, data, the input, the, the impulses that are coming through the nerves. The, the brain has never uh, processed those kind of images before. And instantaneously Jesus is able to, to do all that, to restore the, all the physical apparatus connected with sight and then to teach the brain how to, how to see. Uh, Jesus does that. And, and these people have some understanding that, that what has happened here is truly astounding. And 
this can't be just attributed to demons. So this attempt to discredit Jesus by saying, uh, oh, he's performing this by the power of demons. Uh, he's a false prophet because he doesn't uh, do what Moses said you should do on the Sabbath day, which Moses didn't actually say about healing on the Sabbath day. It's, it's, not, it's not carrying any weight. So they, they attempt a, a different approach during this first interview. They, they uh, attempt to deny the miracle. To say, oh, nothing really happened here. This is not the man who was born blind. This is somebody else who has always been able to see, who is trying to trick you into uh, believing in Jesus by claiming a miracle that really didn't happen. Uh, That was their second tactic. And that, too, fell flat on its face because two witnesses were brought forth to testify that this was indeed a man who had been born blind, and the two witnesses uh, were the two who knew him best in life and who had brought him into this world. His own parents came and bore witness that that this man uh, was indeed born blind. So their attempt to discredit Jesus on the basis of his uh, uh, being a false prophet didn't work. Uh, the attempt to discredit him that no miracle really happened uh, didn't work. And uh, they have uh, one other trick in their book, and that is to uh, threaten disciplinary action against those who would confess Christ. And that seems to have some effect on the parents. They're afraid to say too much about Jesus. And so uh, they say, look, we know this is our son. We we know that uh, he was born blind. We know that he now sees, but uh, so the rest of it, uh, ask him. And so when they, they see that they're able to intimidate the parents into uh, being silent about uh, saying anything good about Jesus, they, uh, they call the man back for a second interview to try to intimidate him. And that's what the second interview is all about, to try to intimidate him. Uh, from uh, believing in uh, Jesus. And they, uh, they question him about uh, uh, who Jesus is, who do you think he is, uh, is he a, and he confesses uh, that he uh, believes him to, uh, to be a, a prophet and to uh, be from God because God only uh, listens to the prayers of the righteous. Now this opens up a, a, a tangent that we could go off on and uh, what kind of prayers does God listen to? And uh, just let me say a, a few words about that. Uh, certainly God is omniscient. That means God knows everything. God knows every word you've ever spoken. He knows every thought you've ever thought. And he knows that not only of you and me, he knows that of every human being in the world. And so if anybody says anything, including if anybody says anything to God, uh, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter what the condition of their soul is, God is aware of it. God knows it. And in, in that sense, God hears everything. But as far as granting the desires of those who come to God with requests, uh, well, we know that only uh, the righteous are received by God in that regard. Uh, the... Uh, Uh, Proverbs 15, verse 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. And again, Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And uh, 
That doesn't mean that uh, God uh, gives us everything that we ask for. Even we have to, like Jesus, pray, not my will, but thy will be done. But uh, God is gracious uh, to his people. He hears and uh, answers their prayers and uh, often graciously responds to give us that which our hearts desire if it is in accordance with his will. Uh, So, uh, anyway, this man comes. uh, We we see that there's been a transformation in this man. Uh, At first, he, he doesn't know who Jesus is and after all, he's never seen, at this point, he's never seen Jesus. Jesus made the mud and applied it to his eyes, but at that point, he still couldn't see. He had to go away from Jesus and go to the pool of Siloam to wash in order to receive his sight, and Jesus didn't go with him, so when he got his sight, Jesus wasn't around. But he just reasons it through while he's talking in this second interview with the Pharisees, and he comes to confess that uh, Jesus indeed is from God, uh, which is the equivalent of confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed of God, the anointed one. That's what Christ means. He's, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word. The word Christ is a Greek word. Both words mean anointed one, uh, the special servant of God, sent by God to uh, deliver his people and help them in their need. He makes that confession and for making that confession he is cast out cast out of the synagogue he is excommunicated now in these two interviews we we see that at first they they try to uh, discredit jesus then they try to deny the miracle and then they use intimidation to ostracize to uh, do what we would call cancel culture, to uh, blacklist him and uh, make him uh, a pariah in society, at least in religious society, so that he's not welcome in the synagogue and certainly not welcome at the temple anymore for the temple ceremonies. These are the tactics that they use to fight against Christ. And Solomon is correct that there is nothing new under the sun. These are, these are the tactics that the world uses today. They attempt to discredit Jesus. Uh, Often they do that by attempting to discredit the Bible, which is the book that tells us about Jesus. The Bible is all about him, both Old and New Testament. And so if they can undercut your confidence in the Bible, they can uh, discredit Jesus in your eyes. I've seen that uh, done uh, recently in uh, all the furor in our society, all the upheaval about race relations and uh, white supremacy and uh, the evils of white people and so forth. And a lot of the blame is placed on the Bible, the Bible that uh, uh, teaches slavery, so it goes. Well, a careful reading of the Bible shows that what the Bible describes as slavery has no bearing or relationship to what has been practiced by wicked people in history. In fact, you can go to Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, or 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, and see that uh, man-stealing or enslaving people is condemned as a wicked sin. Moses said it's a capital crime, and, and Paul listed among the list of very heinous crimes the enslaving of people. Uh, Paul said that, uh, you know, whatever condition you're in, you ought to be content except 
Except if you're a slave, if you can get your freedom, get, get your freedom because he recognized that slavery was an evil institution. And he wrote to, to transform the institution of slavery, telling slave owners that they better treat their, their slaves with respect because they're going to have to answer to God for how they treat these fellow human beings and telling the slaves to respect their masters because they, they're really working for God. And uh, when a, a runaway slave uh, uh, comes uh, to Paul and is converted to Christ, uh, Paul uh, obeys the law and, and sends the slave back to his master with a letter saying, now receive him back as a brother in Christ, which means he's not a slave anymore. Uh, slavery in the, in the Old Testament was simply a form of dealing with bankruptcy. Uh, if you uh, became indebted to someone and you couldn't pay your debts, you say, okay, I'm yours for seven years. Uh, you have to feed me, clothe me, and house me, but my labor is free for seven years to repay the money that I, I owe you. Uh, it was a form of, of dealing with bankruptcy. And during that time of enslavement, the slave was protected by law. Uh, it says in uh, Exodus 21 that if uh, the master strikes the slave and knocks out his tooth, you are to uh, give the slave his freedom. So slavery isn't anything, in the Bible, isn't anything like what was practiced uh, in human history. And uh, there was one other form of slavery in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and that was the enslavement of pagan peoples when they were conquered. Uh, God uh, commanded at first that uh, the wicked be put to death because their wickedness was full. They deserved to die, and so they were commanded to be put to death. But uh, sometimes uh, God relented and allowed uh, the enemy to be taken into Israel as slaves, as hewers of uh, wood and car- hewers of water and cutters of wood, and uh, as uh, builders of the temple under Solomon. But uh, really, that. That was something good for these people to be enslaved in Israel meant they were exposed to the religion of Israel. And when they converted to the Israelite faith, they weren't allowed to be enslaved anymore. And so you have people like Uriah the Hittite. Hittite is is an officer in David's army, married to a beautiful woman and has a house in Jerusalem. Uh, He's a pagan, but uh, his ancestors had been enslaved, but now he's... he's, uh, a full citizen with, with rights in Israel. Of course, David, the wicked king, uh, abrogates those rights unrighteously. But nevertheless, uh, uh, the slaves were blessed to be able to live in Israel and uh, to learn about the true God, uh, which was uh, not what uh, conquered peoples had any right to expect in that day. It was the rule that uh, conquered peoples were all to be put to death, both Israel did that uh, early on as well as the other nations. So uh, to discredit the Bible by saying that uh, the Bible is responsible for all the enslavement of, of people in the world, not just black people, but white people have been enslaved in the world, to put that at, at the foot of Christians and say, you're responsible because your Bible approves of slavery, is totally contrary to the Bible. It's, it's not true that the argument wouldn't wash uh, the argument that Jesus is a false prophet uh, wouldn't wash in Jesus' day, and the, pro- the uh, idea that the Bible uh, promotes things that are contrary to the uh, 
to what is good and right that won't wash today. The same is true with regard to uh, homosexuality and uh, transgenderism. Again, Christians are blamed for being people of hatred when, in fact, the Bible teaches that that the gospel is good news for sinners and that we're to have compassion upon sinners, not hate them, but have compassion upon them and, and help them in their need and encourage them. Uh, the Bible is a good book, and uh, though the world wants to discredit it, uh, they, uh, they fail in the attempt if, because anyone who has their eyes open to what the Bible really says sees, sees that indeed it is the, the good book. But not only does uh, the world today attempt to discredit Jesus by discrediting the Bible, by saying it's uh, outdated and uh, evil and wicked, promoting all kinds of hatred, uh, they also try to uh, deny the miracles of Jesus. You know, today uh, the world's Bible is science. That's, that's their authority. And science denies the supernatural. Uh, nature is ultimate. As uh, the late Carl Sagan used to say, uh, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. And uh, we're just here by uh, chance. And uh, therefore, there's no ultimate right and wrong and so forth. And, of course, there are no miracles. And so the miracles of the Bible are attributed to legend and myth, and they try to discredit uh, that as well. But, you know, there's some things that you can't discredit in the Bible uh, that are supernatural. Because when God spoke to uh, Moses and and said, uh, Moses asked, you know, how will they know that I'm speaking for you? God gave him two ways of proving that the word that Moses spoke was from God. He said, do these signs, signs and wonders, miracles. But also, God said, if a prophet says something is going to happen and it happens, then you know that that prophet is from God because only God can predict the future accurately. Well, we have those prophecies. You and I have never seen miracles uh, performed by the Apostle Paul or by Jesus or Peter or so forth. We've not seen those kind of uh, miracles performed by authorized spokespersons for God. But we can go to Matthew 24 and hear Jesus say uh, concerning the temple that in the lifetime of the apostles, not one stone will be left upon another. And indeed, in the lifetime of the apostles in A.D. 70, the temple was completely destroyed and not one stone stands upon another to this day. You can go to to, to Israel and to Jerusalem and see that the prophecy has been fulfilled. Uh, It's it's, uh, incontrovertible that Jesus was able to predict something that happened 40 years after he died. Therefore, that's proof to you and me that indeed... Uh, the Bible is true, and that's not the only prediction. There are uh, hundreds of predictions in both Old and New Testament uh, that uh, have indeed come to pass. The only ones that haven't come to pass are the ones that have not yet come to pass concerning the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the world continues to try to uh, deny uh, Jesus as uh, authentic by discrediting him and discrediting his book, denying his miracles. And if none of that works then, of course, they will try to uh, intimidate you. And indeed, uh, they are using lawsuits to try to uh, put uh, bakers out of business and florists out of business and uh, photographers out of business to uh, intimidate people who want to hold to biblical values and apply those biblical values to every aspect of their lives. But again, that, uh, that is nothing new. This uh, attempt by the culture to blacklist us and uh, 
uh, cancel us. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, it says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, after the lights went on for you, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly when you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You know, they, they were rebuked, they were uh, reproached, they were made a spectacle of in the first century uh, as Christians, and uh, Christians today are rebuked and made a spectacle of today, and they're ridiculed and mocked and, and so forth, and, and we need to expect that, and we need to expect that our fellow Christians will suffer that as well, and we need to stand with them and, and encourage them in their time of need as well, because this continues to be the, the way that the world wants to stop you from confessing faith in Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't going to let the world have the last word, so he comes and finds this man for his third interview, two with the Pharisees and one with Jesus. And the first thing to note here is that Jesus comes to him when he is in need. He's been cast out. The the, the reproaches of the world have fallen on him, and he's been excommunicated and canceled and blacklisted and uh, publicly shamed as a, as a sinner, uh, unworthy to uh, enter into uh, the people of God. So Jesus comes to him. It reminds me of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, the world came down heavy on them and threw them into a fiery furnace. And, and Jesus came to them. Even the king saw one like the Son of God coming and uh, standing among them. And uh, so now Jesus comes to to his people in their need. Uh, Paul writes uh, in First Second Timothy, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord comes to us in our need, and he comes to encourage us. And he asks this man, Do you believe in the Son of God, our text says, although there's a footnote that says uh, most Greek manuscripts have the word Son of Man, which is, Jesus' normal way of uh, referring to himself, whether it's son of man or son of God, it it doesn't make a whole lot of difference because the phrase son of man uh, has divine connotations. It's a phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7 where uh, Daniel sees a vision of one like the son of man going up to heaven and being seated on a throne and being given divine honors. Uh, Son of man says it's a man, but uh, the man is seen to receive divine honor, so it's a man who is also God. And and Jesus liked that phrase about himself. And so whether he uses son of man here or son of God, he's, he's referring here not only to his human nature, he's referring to his divine nature and asking this man if he believes. And not just do you acknowledge me to be uh, divine, But uh, do you trust in me? And the man confesses and does what every confessor ought to do. He bows down and he worships. He worships the man. The world doesn't want that. The world does everything it can to prevent it. But God has been gracious to this man and has 
opened his eyes. God found him. God came to him and God opened his eyes. And God is is coming also for you. I've come to, to seek and to save the lost. Has he found you? Has he opened your eyes? Then make that good confession before the world, even though they may ridicule you and mock you and reproach you and cancel you. Make the good confession. Come and worship him. Bow down before him. Come into his presence as we come into his presence by the Spirit. Our worship is is brought up to heaven today by the Spirit. And we are in his presence together, bowing down before him and worshiping, making the good confession, and go out into the world and continue to confess your faith in him without fear, knowing that indeed he is God and he will care for his people. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gracious way that you worked in this blind man's life, bringing him to see, to see not only with his eyes, but to see with his heart, to see that you are indeed divine, human and divine, and that you are the Savior of the world. We pray that you would open our eyes also. Father, we uh, uh, see how uh, those who, who confess to see are indeed blind. Those who profess to, to know everything really don't. O oh Lord, have mercy upon them. Have compassion on the lost. And uh, as you have had compassion on us, so have compassion on them and draw them to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.